Father, I am grateful for this church body, for every brother and sister in this room, for our friends in this room. Um, Lord, thank you for just the lavish and loving reminder of your kindness, of your grace, of your mercy, of your covenantal love for us this morning, just through the songs, Lord. Um, good, good Father, um, everlasting God. And um, yeah, even though you are our king, you're also our brother, Jesus. And as a deer pants for streams of living water, so longs our soul after you. Thank you that we can now drink of you as we look into your word. Thank you that we can now eat of you as we open up your word. I pray that you would, Lord, change us um, through, through this chapter. And Paul says some strong things, but he's a father to that church. And sometimes fathers say strong things. Not to leave in shame but to shock us out of places that you don't want us to stay in. So, Father, would you give me grace? You have convicted and challenged me so much this week through this text. I pray that you would accomplish everything you want to in every heart under the sound of this word this morning. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. So we are in a series through the book of 1 Corinthians this is a church that had a veritable laundry list of issues, right? Just a litany of issues that they were going through. Do you remember which issue Paul initially or first addresses? Division. You almost think like he's hung up on this thing about division. Chapter 1, he talks about division. Chapter 2, he talks about division. Chapter 3, he talks about division. Enough already, Paul. And you know what? He's going to do so for one more chapter. Only in this chapter, it's with a little bit of a twist. We learn something that we didn't know yet, and that comes out in full blast in his second epistle to the church at Corinth. See, up to this point, as far as we knew, the division was originating in the pew. You know, people were saying, hey, I'm on Cephas' team, or I'm on Apollos' team, or I'm all for Paul, that kind of thing, right? But now we learn that another source of that division was, was from the platform. It seems like there was somebody, some person, or some number of people who were trying to assert their authority at that church in such a way that it was having a divisive impact. Now, Paul warned about that a lot. You remember in Acts chapter 20, Paul has all the elders of the church of um, Ephesus gathered, and he says, you know, listen, I didn't stop warning you for three years, night and day, with tears, to be on guard, because from within your own ranks, wolves will arise in sheep's clothing. So watch out for the flock of God, which he purchased with his own blood. This is what was happening here. Paul doesn't mention them by name. Most commentators conclude he doesn't mention them by name because he doesn't want to dignify what they're doing. He doesn't want to give them too much airtime. But there's hints all over this chapter that they were rearing, these false teachers were rearing their ugly head from an attempt to usurp authority. So for instance, verse 6, we learn that they were going beyond that which was written, going beyond Scripture. Verse 8, it seems that they were promoting a Christianity that was a cakewalk, Verses 17 and 18 indicate that they were rejecting Paul's teaching and his authority. And verses 18 and 19 indicate that they were arrogantly trying to take over. Paul ain't having that. And in a chapter that is a very difficult chapter, some have said this is Paul in his finest hour, he defends his apostolic ministry. And so from his defense, I want to preach to us on this simple and yet very profound theme, true biblical 
leadership. Because I think there's some overarching principles for us 2,000 years later. The obvious and immediate application would be for those who are in the pastoral ranks, elders, people in an elder apprentice track like Nick. Obvious application there. But I would say fairly, this text and these four realities we're going to look at apply to everyone who is a Christian leader. So that would be every father here right? That would be every mother here. That would be every deacon. That would be every ministry leader. In fact, that would be all of us because every Christian here, you at some point in your life are going to lead something. So we want to look at from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, true biblical leadership. Actually, I had handouts and I actually took the time to print them up. So can, uh, yeah, Nick, would you grab those? If you don't have one, let, let, let me make sure you get one because I forgot that I printed those out. True Christian leadership, what we're going to look at. Now, what we're going to look at, and you'll see it in that little outline, we're going to look at a true Christian leader's identity. Then we're going to look at a true Christian leader's authority. Then we're going to look at a true Christian leader's experience. And finally, a true Christian leader's approach. So number one, a true Christian leader's identity. We're going to dive right in. Chapter one, Paul says, hey, church at Corinth, this is how I want you to think about us. We ain't celebrities. Rather, verse one, this is how you should regard us as servants. He says, don't think about anybody trying to stand up and lead on a platform in any other, any other way as nothing but a servant. And what's fascinating is in your Greek New Testament, there are six different words for servant, like doulos, slave, various words. This may be the most depictive term, not used that frequently, but it literally reads under rower. It references a slave who rose on the lowest level of a cargo or warship. I looked this up a little bit, kind of fascinating. 500 years before Christ, they had engineered, built these things called triremes. You ever heard of a trireme? Oh, good. I had never heard of it, Brian, but I should have known you had. <laughs> these were ships upwards of 200 feet long, dense wood for the hull, lighter wood for the top, and they would have three layers or levels of rowers. That was the means of propulsion. Obviously, the top level, long oars, middle level, shorter oars, bottom level, real short oar. And this is referring to an under rower who wasn't just then a galley slave. An under rower wasn't even just a rower. The under rower was the lowest level of rowing on these ancient trireme cargo warships. And you, if you've ever been on a ship, it's pretty nasty at the very bottom level. That's where they rowed, way down below. And can you imagine that kind of work, under rowing? Hard work, smelly work, hot, sweaty you're one of a nameless many just plugging away, under rowing on a trireme. Nothing sexy about that, is there? Nobody aspired, hey, when I grow up, I want to be an under rower on a trireme. But that is what he describes as a true Christian leader. I am an under rower. Now, we don't want to get it twisted here. A leader in the Christian capacity in any form, doesn't mean because you're an under rower, you're a lackey, right? That you just tell people what they want to hear or that you're just trying to make them happy at any expense. No, it says, I want you to regard us as a servant of who? Christ, serving everybody, but a servant who belongs to Christ. Now, what's interesting is that on these massive ships, one ship I read about that they, they, the archaeologists found had a, would have about 170 rowers on it, they estimated, by the holes and, and whatnot. Way up on the top deck, there would be a man with a massive drum. Boom, 
boom, boom, sufficient volume so that it would go all the way down to the third deck below. And the guy would beat the drum, boom, boom, so that all the rowers would be in unison. He'd beat the drum, they would row. It was very simple. The rower would think to himself, he beats the drum, and what do I do? I row the oar. He beats the drum, I row the oar. And Paul is making it clear that Jesus is the one that beats the drum. That he's the one that directs our life and directs the ship, him. So I think it's important to say that not being a lackey, but knowing Jesus is the one beating the drum, knowing that Jesus is Lord is actually what frees a leader, whether it's a pastor or a father or a mother, a deacon or anything else. It's what frees the leader to really love those who they're serving. Because Jesus is going to have you row some directions people aren't going to always be so thrilled about. Father, mother, deacon, elder, and so on and so forth. Just some places people want to go, right? And knowing then that Jesus Christ is Lord... He's an under rower on the trireme. He's the one up above beating the drum. Knowing that, I believe, immunized Paul from being crushed by their negative opinion of him, which is what some of these so-called super apostles or false teachers were trying to stir up against him. But because Paul is an under rower of Christ, he is able to say, say in verse 3, But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any other human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, he says. Now, what basically he's saying, because Jesus is my, he's my Lord, your your opinion of me, he doesn't say it doesn't mean anything, does he? He doesn't say it's no thing, but what does he say? It's a small thing. In other words, yeah, it lands. And yeah, I do self-analysis as well. But it's not the ultimate thing for me. Is it because Paul thinks he's got it all together? Is that why he's saying that? No. In fact, he says now in verse 4, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. Why? Because it's the Lord who judges me. And therefore, he is content to keep on rowing until the great day ahead when God exposes every motivation. Therefore, he says, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I believe this truth, that he rooted his identity as a true Christian leader as being a servant of Christ, an under rower for Christ, is what freed him to love and serve for the benefit of others and not for others fawning all over him. That's exactly what he says in verse 6. Look, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for whose benefit? Does he say my benefit? No, for your benefit. That's what he's saying. A true Christian leader sacrifices people's present favor for them in light of a future thank you to them. He rose according to the drumbeat of Christ. He says, I am a servant of Christ. So, number one, what is a true Christian leader's identity? An under-roar for Christ. Now, that leads to number two. A true Christian leader's authority is this, Scripture, the Word of God. Because he says in verse one, this is how you should regard us as under rowers of Christ and as stewards, a steward. A steward, that's tapping in to a practice in the ancient Greek world where a master would appoint a slave to be the manager of, over his estate. Jesus actually told some parables like that, right? He would appoint a slave to be the manager of his estate. And the one thing that mattered 
for that steward was whether or not he was faithful to his master's word. That's why it says in verse 2, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful, faithful. Paul says he's a steward of the mysteries of God. Mystery of God is simply something that was concealed in the past and now revealed in the present, namely the gospel, right? That's what, you go to Colossians, the mystery of God is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Hinted at in the Old Testament, put on blast, and fully revealed in the incarnation, perfect life, sacrificial death, and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I am a steward of the gospel, the truth about Jesus Christ. A true Christian leader, in other words, has no authority outside of Scripture. None. None. If he or she will be a true Christian leader, they must lead as a servant of Christ according to the authority of God's Word. Now, here's the rub, verse 6, and I mentioned this by way of introduction. It seems some of these false teachers, these wannabe apostles, were going beyond, quote, that what is written, that which was written. Now, this, this is, I think, pretty interesting. That expression, beyond that which is written, that which is written, was actually a technical expression referring to Scripture, that which is written. You, you, Jesus would say, you, it's been written, right? It was a technical allusion to Scripture. And it seems that some of these false teachers then were going beyond Scripture, talking about their ideas of worldly wisdom and worldly power and all of that. I thought it was timely that I was in Chicago uh, last, I think it was Monday and Tuesday, perfect trifecta, got to watch Ian play football, did a great job, uh, got to hunt deer, and go to an EFCA conference. You ever heard of a man named Raleigh Washington? Fascinating man. I think he's late 70s, 80 now. In fact, his church, you might not know this, was pretty uh, informative and, and instructive for starting Restore Church nearly a decade ago. He started a church, this man did, uh, in the heart of Chicago, a church that was intentionally for all people. So some of you, a few of you, would remember from the very beginning we would hold things, something called the Dinner and Dialogue. Who remembers that? Dinner and Dialogue. And we would address issues having to do with the church where we are seeking to be a people for every ethnicity. That was based on something called their, their fudge ripple receptions, where they would have a fudge ripple Sunday, and people would come together, predominantly black and white, and, and talk about issues as it relates to the gospel and race. This is a man who experienced no little racism in his own life. He recounted that, and uh, he recounted, he very humorous in the way he spoke. He said uh, he, he became an officer, he became a brand new second lieutenant, United States Army. He shows up at base in California, a white buck sergeant salutes him, a young black man, and he says, I think I like this army. I can't look a white man in the eyes down south, and now white men are saluting me. Give me the army. And he did really well, extremely gifted man. He progressed rapidly, became a lieutenant colonel, but then there, racism reared its ugly head, and it, um, there's some false charges were trumped up against him, and the army threatened him, and they said, listen, you can sign this letter of reprimand, we'll separate you, and you'll get full retirement, and if you don't sign that letter, we are going to release you one day ahead of 20 years, which would mean he would not get any retirement after 20 years minus one day of active duty service. He was actually going to sign that letter because he says, I got a family, I got to support my family and all the rest. And his wife said, no, no, you didn't do that. That's not right. Let's stand up. And he did. And he got out. And nine years later, through the help of a Jewish attorney, he recovered all of his back pay. Everything was made right. I'm telling you that because Raleigh Washington is a man who has experienced legitimate, real racism. And yet, as I heard him speak with much passion this last Monday afternoon, Pastor Washington, with great passion, 
decried pastors today and Christians today, here's our text, going beyond Scripture, employing something which he said he felt like was from the pit, critical race theory. And this is what he said. It's not what I said. This is what he said. He said he has seen that create, and he was heartbroken because he's led a church like this. Heartbroken seeing how that has created division where there had been healing and unity, where it had created suspicions between people who had had perfect shalom, false accusations where there had been sweet harmony, and as the text said, much arrogance, people being puffed up, people who get it, right, and and people who don't. Paul talked about that kind of thing right here. And as a Christian leader, whether you're an elder or a pastor, which is the same thing, by the way, uh, or a father or a mother or a deacon or anything else, you have to make sure, going back to point one, that you're ministering for people's long-term good, not short-term favor. And so you have to rise above the haze of all this stuff. I love John Stott wrote this book called Between Two Worlds. It's about preaching, but the title itself is so healthy for every leader. He says a preacher or a Christian leader, I'll put that in, stands between two worlds. And what we need to do then is fix ourselves, our eyes on the truth of Scripture so that Ephesians 4.14, people are not tossed to and fro by every... Wind of doctrine, by every wind of doctrine. And I would just say that there's two ways Christian leaders undermine the authority of God's word and thereby fail to exercise truly Christian leadership. The first is by addition. It's called legalism. It's when you add to scripture, or as it says here, you go beyond. And what... Pastor Washington talked about is a case example of legalism, that Christ is not enough, that there's a new circumcision you need to undergo. And like with all other forms of racism or legalism, you never know exactly if you're doing enough. With all forms of legalism, you never know if you're doing enough. Um, so there's guilt, and there's shame, and there's fear, and there's always, always, always more you got to do to prove that you are meeting the standard for whatever that legalistic doctrine is. Legalism binds. It hurts. It fills with guilt and shame and fear and division and all the rest. Now, the second way Christian leaders undermine the authority of God's word and fail to exercise truly Christian leadership is through subtraction. See, addition leads to theological legalism. Subtraction leads to theological liberalism. It's called red-letter Christianity. Remember that? I did this chapter, first run through 1 Corinthians 1 through 10, in two messages. And I talked a little bit about red-letter Christianity. Red-letter Christianity says this. We just go with Jesus' words. You know, the ones in red in the Gospels. And at a level, it sounds rather pious, right? But it's utterly demonic. People say stuff like this. Why do you guys even, you know, make an issue of, say, I don't know, homosexuality? That's one, right? Hot button thing right there. Why do you make such a big issue? Jesus never talked about it. Look at the red letters. Well, that's just erroneous in so many counts. Number one, Jesus is God, and all the Bible is the word of God. So in a real sense, it's all red letter, if you want to look at it that way. Number two, if you want to talk about the red letters, Jesus actually established the norm for sexual interaction when he made it clear, one man, one woman, covenantal marriage. And I like it. What somebody said when Jesus, some commentator said this, and I hadn't thought about this. This makes so much sense. 
that when Jesus was on earth, he primarily addressed the Jewish audience, right? And the sins of his, of his Jewish people, which was legalism, pharisaicalism, racism, that kind of stuff, right? When Paul came, he addresses the sins of the Gentile world, which was rife with immorality, idolatry, and, and, and deviant sexuality. So he's very clear on some things that Jesus had already laid the foundation for. But because Paul knew his authority was scripture, Paul was a preacher of grace. That's what verse seven's talking about. Grace, for who sees anything different in you? Well, it's grace. What do you have that you did not receive? Well, it's grace. If then you received it, grace, why do you boast as if you did not receive it, you earned it? Not grace. Paul was a steward of the mysteries of God, rowing to the drumbeat of Christ, and therefore was a preacher of grace, which utterly annihilates theological legalism and theological liberalism. A true Christian leader leads from the gospel and challenges every direction. Now, number three, we're gonna go to a true Christian leader's experience, which is suffering. He's real clear on this. Now, the false and erroneous teachers um, anywhere, whether it would be at a church that you're part of or the church at Corinth, false and erroneous teachers, people who try and usurp authority or rear their, their head and create kind of a following, they always impact those around them. And clearly this was the case at Corinth. They were teaching something, probably something like um, a hyper-realized eschatology. You ever heard of hyper-realized eschatology? That's just a fancy way of saying. They were basically saying, Chris, you're... you're all the kingdom promises of God, promised to the, to, the, to the child of God in the future, you can have now. You can have them all now. If you just follow our teaching, today we'd say if you plant your seed, right? Health and wealth gospel, prosperity gospel. If you just believe us, if you just follow us, if you claim it, you can have, you can have it all. You can have all of God's eternal blessings right here and now. You can have complete healing. You can have all the wealth you need. You can have influence and all the rest. And that was just little more than the cultural values of the day baptized and enough Christianity coated enough peanut butter, if you will, to get that big old pill down their throat. And it does get down the throat of people who don't know their Bible well and maybe really are sick and want to be healed. Who doesn't, right? Or maybe they are poor and they want to have some, some material wealth. Or maybe they don't feel like they're anybody and they want to be a somebody. And people like that who don't know their Bible, they swallow the pill. So Paul, because that hyper-realized eschatology was infecting the ranks of the church, just like false ideologies will infect ranks of churches, he addresses it with some scathing sarcasm to show the utter idiocy of that position. He said, I'm going to try and read it with the sarcasm. I think he wrote it. Already you have all that you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you would have become kings. We're the ones holding you back from having all God's blessings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. I would say there's at least a quotient of sarcasm in that, wouldn't you? We've got to be careful with sarcasm. Sometimes it's a tool. Sometimes it makes a tool out of us, so we've got to be careful. But he uses it here. Then in verse 9, he, I think he establishes what a true Christian leader will experience. It'll be true for all Christians, and I think for leaders, on, they'll experience this on steroids, in spades. He says, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. Because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Now, that is an illusion 
to an ancient practice when one of the Roman armies would defeat an enemy, they would have in a large nearby city a massive parade. We would almost say like a ticker tape parade. Remember when the, well, no, you don't. A handful of us remember 1984 when the Tigers won the World Series and ticker tape. Who remembers that here? Yes, just about three of us. It's a big deal, right? It's a really big deal. And they would have a big parade into a city. You know, all the, all the, uh, the, the, you know, the occupants of the city would line the roads, and then would, all this pomp and regalia. You have the generals up front on the beautiful stallions and their helmets glistening, the bronze and the feathers and the purple pageantry and all of that. And then you would have, I think after that would come the chariots, and all, all that stuff, and then they would have the company great officers, field great, field great officers, company great officers, then you have the horsemen, then you have the foot soldiers, and finally, in the back, you would have the POWs. And they would be led to the arena. Not so they could enjoy a good show and eat some popcorn, so that they could be a good show. They would be fed to the gladiators, or fed to the lions, fed to the gladiators, carnivores too, or uh, what's the word I'm looking for, cannibals. They may have been, I don't know, it's pretty bad stuff, like this is R-rated stuff. They would be fed to the lions, or they would be forced to fight to the death against well-trained, strong gladiators, etc. Now, I want you to look at what, what Paul says right here. Again, we are like men sentenced to what? to death. And then he goes on to say, we've become a spectacle. It's the word theatron, from which we get the word theater. They were a theater for people, right? Going to be fed to the lions, that'll be fun to watch. They'll get stabbed to death by a gladiator before jeering thousands. That's what Paul was saying was their experience. And he reversed the sarcasm again in verse 10. We're fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise in Christ. We are weak, but you're strong. You're held in honor, but we in disrepute. disrepute. And that was true. He says, to the present hour we hunger and we thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. And then he tells, them, tells us how they responded. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. To faithfully row, to faithfully lead as an under-rowing servant of Christ by the authority of God's word, you will experience suffering. That's the point. Not exclusively, of course, right? There's going to be much blessing. But here, he's just made very clear, there will be suffering. You will suffer. Now, the thing is, we live in an anomaly. Uh, we live in a small time and place that has been a veritable blip in the history of the world, let alone Christianity. In other words, across history, past, present, and future, and in history right now, in most places, Christians suffer. Christian leaders are targets, and all Christians suffer. Now, for a long time, Christianity has been rather accepted in America, right? And there is definitely an upside to that. Let's be clear. Like, a lot of people won't want you to know that, but Christianity has led to some really beautiful things in the West and in our country. But there's also, and we must be honest about this, a very dark underbelly to this as well. As Christianity has become culturally captive to elements of the right and elements of the left. And when that happens, it ain't pretty. Because now Christianity is a vehicle to impose worldly values instead of biblical realities. Now, it's not all bad. The wind's changing because as the wind changes, what happens? There's winnowing that goes on. That's a good thing. Separating wheat from chaff and purifying the church collectively and us individually. And even now, even now, I'm just trying to be faithful to what Paul's telling us here. Even now, as a leader, father, mother, 
trying to lead in a true Christian way according to the word of God, pastor, deacon, ministry leader, campus leader, anything like that, you're gonna suffer. You're gonna suffer mentally, you're gonna suffer physically, under the weight of responsibility, heartbreaks, severed relationships, impact on your families and loved ones, betrayal, slander, seemingly wasted investment, satanic attacks, all of that will exact a toll on your mind and body. It will. And then you add your own sin and your own struggles and your own inconsistencies in the mix. Good night. Who is sufficient for these things? A father, you know, exhorts a child to patience. And that night loses his temper. You're like, what in the world am I doing? What, what, what is this? I think... <laughs> Paul understood this. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, for we are the aroma of Christ to those who are being saved and to those who are perishing. 2 Corinthians 2 verses 15 through 17. To the one, a fragrance from death to death. That don't smell too good. And the other, a fragrance from life to life. And he just, it's like he throws up his hands and he says, well, who is sufficient for these things? But then he makes it clear, I'm going to be an under rower of Christ, rowing to his drumbeat under the authority of God's word, whatever the experience. Because he goes on to say, for we are not like so many, so many peddlers of God's word, going beyond that which is written or going less than that which is written. But as men of sincerity, not perfection, you're not going to be a leader of perfection, but as sincerity, as commissioned by God, in, just remember this, you're in the sight of God. In the sight of God, we preach Christ. Later on, he will say this, for I do not want you to be unaware, brother, 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, earlier on I should say, of the affliction, affliction, we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. This is what Paul is saying. This is what he is saying. For indeed, we felt we had received the very sentence of death. But that was to make us not to rely on ourselves, but to rely on God. To rely on God. He'll say in chapter 2, for I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. I could go on. For the sake of time, I won't. Paul puts a bow on this leader's experience of suffering in the latter part of verse 13 when he says, we have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Now, there's, it's interesting if you read the commentators on what does that mean. Some say it refers to the leftover, smelly, stinky entrails on the altar after a sacrifice of an animal. Others have likened it more contemporary terms to if you've ever you know, fried something in a pan and put the pan in the sink and left it a couple of days and it's stinky and it's hard to get off the pan and people are looking at each other right now because they do that. Um, hallelujah. So, hallelujah. Um, whatever it is, it, it could be garbage and excrement in, in the original language. It, it's, it, it's just, whatever it is, I just said put a bow on this. This is not ribbons. This is not ribbons and balloons and roses. What I did learn my first run through this chapter is there was this superstitious practice during the time of ancient Greek uh, kingdom where when a city was hit by a plague, they would take the infected people out on one of these triremes or some other ship, get deep out in the Mediterranean, throw them overboard, 
And they would cry out to the gods, let them be our scum. Let them be scum for us. In hopes that the gods would be placated and the plague would be stayed. Even in pagan stories, there's a reflection of gospel truth. Does that remind you of anyone? <laughs> of Jesus Christ, who, who was made to be scum for us. Only he wasn't pushed over the edge. In love he came. In love he came. He made himself of no reputation. He did it of his own accord. It says in Hebrews 12, who for the joy that was set before him despised the shame, endured the cross. And we know, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, that on the cross, he who knew no refuse, he who knew no scum, he who knew no sin, he who knew no rebellion was made to be all of those things for us that God, the Father, could adopt us as a good, good father into his family based on the work of Jesus Christ. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us, 1 John 4 and sent his son to be a propitiation, a wrath-absorbing sacrifice for us. If we will serve a suffering Savior, you will suffer yourself. You heard of Amy Carmichael? Such a powerful poem. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? No wound? No scar? Yet as the master shall the servant, servant be, and pierced will be the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed me far who has no wound or scar? You will have scars if you will lead. Now, my watch, I have a new watch, and now it flips. I don't even know what time it is. Maybe that's a good thing. Because uh, I want to hit this, this fourth point. A true Christian leader's approach, and that of Father. This is a good place to end. While one commentator rightly said, there are serious problems with a minister being called a father, based on Jesus saying, call no man father, in that way, Matthew 23, 39. The role of a father as a minister is quite biblical. Verse 15, Paul says this. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Once again, he's tapping into something that was practiced in the ancient Greek world, particularly among wealthy people, but even middle class would do this. If they had kids, they would hire a guide, if you will. Paul talks about that in Galatians. They, they hire a guide to kind of tutor the kids and, and raise the kids and, and that sort of thing. And, and maybe a contemporary equivalent would be, um, you know, an au pair, you know, or, or a nanny, or a teacher, or a coach, or a mentor, or an influential guy or gal within the church. Now, for some of these guides or tutors, it was just a paycheck, right? It was just a job. Others, no doubt, they really loved the people that they were, you know, mentoring or leading or whatever. But Paul's point is, none of them are your father. None of them are your father. He's not saying these guides and tutors are a bad thing. They're, they're good. It's good for us to have guides and mentors and colleagues and peers and all of that. Like, we can glean, we can grow. But Paul says, I'm your father. And indeed he was. Acts chapter 18, it tells us he spent 18 months in the city of Corinth preaching the gospel, seeing people born again into the kingdom of God, and then people would become Christians in other places coming there to be fathered by him. And I just want to say to, to, to people here at Restore Church, follow your fathers. Follow your fathers. 
I think we live in a time when people run after, here's the word again, verse 15, countless guides over all the issues that, that we've addressed. And so often, don't go to their, one of their fathers. I don't think that squares up with what God would want you to do. Not saying those aren't bad, but Paul says, though you have countless guys, you, you only got one father, right? That's what he says. So follow your fathers. Now, this is where I end. Fathers, father your followers. Now, don't, don't make this gender specific, okay? Again, mothers, fathers, deacons, elders, all of that. And he gives us four things. We are not, listen, you're not a CEO. You're not a cultural uh, engineer, an entrepreneurial architect, a life coach. Those are all things I've seen as pastor descriptions, by the way. Silly, isn't it? It gives us a few things that characterize a good father. First of all, there's love. Verse 14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. That's what he calls them, beloved children. Do you see that? Though they're having all kinds of issues, he doesn't call them Chuckies, Halloween coming up. He calls them beloved children. That's what he calls them. To be a true Christian leader, you must have a real love for people. It sounds so easy on paper. Easy peasy, yeah. So hard in practice, isn't it? Because people that you're seeking to, to serve and lead aren't always so lovely loving, and lovable. And the only way you'll ever have the motivation to do that is to spend much time in the presence of the one who loves you, though you are hardly, I am hardly loving, lovable, and lovely. We have to have our hearts melted by Calvary's love. So for you stand in just a second to sing. You can seize that opportunity to have your heart melted by the Father's love, or you can check out because the sermon went longer, whatever. Love, love, love. And then there's example, he says. This one is so convicting. Verse 16, he says, I urge you then to be imitators of me. We all know the power of example, right? Every parent here could illustrate for good and for bad, humorous and sad, sometimes tragic, the examples of kids based on, your kids based on your example, right? We could all do that. We could all do it. We need to be able to live in ways, in such a way that says, imitate me. And we don't want to be like the Pharisees. Remember Jesus said, hey, you do what the Pharisees say, but don't do what they do. Remember that? We need to say, do what I say and do. It's incredibly sobering, isn't it, family? Because we're so doggone inconsistent. But if we're, if we're comfortable with being inconsistent, then we're in a really bad place. We're in a really bad place. And if we comfort ourselves by saying, well, at least I'm saying the right things, and we don't try and check our inconsistency and grow through it, we're going to create either Pharisees and or rebels. Leadership is challenging enough because those we serve have their own sin issues. So we need to be careful that we don't add with a poor example because of undealt with sin issues in our life instead of encouraging them with the right example. Now, perfection is not required. Progress is. Progress is. I think that's why he says in verse 19, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, just saying the right thing, but in power, transformation. And one of the best examples we can give, because you will shank it as a leader, is the example of repentance, right? Like, I am sorry. I was wrong, etc. A real heartfelt one. And maybe a good way to grow as a father or leader is to ask the question, where would I not want people right now to imitate me? Third, quickly, opportunity. Paul, verse 17, 
This is why I sent you Timothy. Look what he calls him, by the way. My beloved and faithful child in the Lord to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. A a, a father, a leader, having, having trained someone, having reared them, then gives them opportunity to serve. It may not be exactly what you would do or how you would do it, but a father, a leader, gives an opportunity for them to serve. And when they serve, then they grow. And he empowers Timothy to do just that. And then finally, discipline. A father does discipline. Did you see the top of the text when he says, I do not write you these things to make you ashamed, verse 14, but to admonish you? He's not trying to shame them. He's just trying to shock them a little bit. He's he's disciplining them. And he ends with these words, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? What do you think about that? There is, is, in being a father, there is discipline. In being a leader, you you can't read the book of Proverbs without seeing that, right? Discipline. Our father does the same thing for us. And with this I close, just reading from Hebrews 12, verses 6 through 11. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you then as a son. For what son is there whom the father doesn't discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not be much more subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined for us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. A father. So that's what we've looked at this morning. The team wants to come. You've been so patient this morning. So patient. Thank you for letting me walk through a difficult chapter. Just remember what your identity is. Your identity is an under rower of Christ. Remember what your authority is. The word of God, scripture. Be honest about what your experience is going to be at times suffering and endeavor to come with the approach of a biblical father. Love, example, opportunity, and yes, discipline. I don't know how the Lord's spoken to you. He spoke to me as I was preparing, as I was going through it, and once again this morning as I was preaching it. Father, thank you that you are a good, good father. Would you shape us by your word so that individually and collectively we can increasingly be all that you intend us to be so that we can reflect your glory and reach people who are far from you that they might too reflect your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.